So welcome back. Uh, my name is Seam and I'm here at the Biohackers Summit Toronto with Greg Potter. Nice to meet I you see. again. Yeah. And uh, your speech was about chronobiology and uh, and uh, the circadian rhythms and especially like what is the best time to eat food. So can you like give, give a brief overview about what we're talking about? Yeah. I think that historically most people have been interested in the importance of what you eat. Yeah. as opposed to when you eat yeah. and the main ideas underlying chrononutrition as a science is that the timing of your body's clock influences what it ends up doing with the foods and drinks that you eat but also the foods and drinks that you eat influence your body's clocks and that has very important consequences for your health so people are now trying to understand okay with that in mind how can i optimize the timing of my diet and the composition of my diet such that my body's clock functions well mm. and as a result my health is improved yeah yeah but like the circadian rhythms themselves are this very new thing uh like the body has these different inner biological clocks and they're all constantly being uh influenced by light and food and uh temperatures and such how big of a role does nutrition and calories <coughs> play in this like the circadian rhythms how, how do how much influence does it have like compared to light sure yeah it depends on the tissues that you're looking at. Oh. So we have a master clock in our brains and the timing of that master clock is primarily set by light. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned in my talk then, light enters the eyes and then it's detected by these specialized cells called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Mm -hmm. And then they then relay information about light exposure down the optic nerves and the master clock sits above where these cross and it just samples that information so over time, it accumulates your light exposure history, and then it knows what is happening outside during the day. And then this master clock sends signals elsewhere in your body using a variety of mechanisms, so things like signals in nerves, bloodstream, mm. and so on, to tell clocks elsewhere in your body what the time of day is. But every cell in your body has its own clocks, and these determine when the cells do things like build structures and break down structures because those two things can't happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that whereas the timing of the master clock is mostly set by light exposure, the timing of clocks elsewhere in your body, so the clocks in your liver and your fat tissue and your skeletal muscle, for example, is mostly set by food intake. Wow. So what you can do is you can change the timing of your food intake without changing your light dark exposure such that it's only the timing of clocks elsewhere in your body that shifts. And anyway, that's important because it determines when they're optimized for various processes. So the key principle is that whereas the timing of your master clock is mostly set by light and dark, timing of clocks elsewhere seems to be mostly set by your diet. And that's probably important to your health. Okay, yeah. So what is the like the best time to eat, so to say? Yeah. I, I think in practice, it depends on the person, what you're optimizing for, mm. when you're physically active and so on. So what I spoke about in that talk is the fact that you can get some idea of somebody's biological nighttime by looking at their melatonin profiles. So during darkness, the master clock detects that light's no longer coming in, and then it relays that signal back to the pineal gland in the brain. Mm -hmm. And this then synthesizes melatonin, 
melatonin then circulates in the bloodstream and it acts on various receptors and tissues to tell them that it's the nighttime and so to do their nighttime activities. Yeah. So melatonin tie, it's the biological nighttime. Because they're doing their nighttime activities, historically, we didn't have access to food at night. So those don't really involve doing things that are related to digesting food, mm. for example. Mm -hmm. So we're not well set for food intake at that time. So as a starting point, minimizing food intake and digestive processes during the biological nighttime mm -hmm. is a good starting point. And as a heuristic, I think that it's useful to minimize food intake for about half an hour after you naturally wake up. So let's say that you wake up at 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. to an alarm, but you naturally get up at about 7 a.m. I wouldn't recommend that you eat until at least 7.30 okay. based on that. And then in general, you see a sharp spike in melatonin synthesis about two hours before bedtime. Mm. So let's say that somebody naturally falls asleep at 10 p.m., Typically, although there's quite a lot of variability, you'll see a sharp increase in melatonin at about 8 p.m. Mm. So I'd recommend not consuming any food in the two hours before when you Good plan to go to sleep. Right. So that's a starting point. But then on top of that, there are various factors that probably influence when it's best to eat. So for example, physical activity. You can probably put more of your calorie intake around physical activity because when you engage in physical activity, it has all sorts of beneficial effects on various metabolic functions. So let's say that you work nine to five and you can only get to the gym at 6 p.m. You're there from six until 6.45. It's probably fine that even though that's late in your biological day, you put a lot of your calorie intake around then mm -hmm. because the nutrients that you consume are in large part gonna go towards the tissues yeah. where you want to store those nutrients. So that's important. And then also it just depends on what you're optimizing for. So let's say that you're a desk worker and you really want to be sharp at work. Food's just a distraction. And for that reason, you want to minimize food intake at that time. Mm. In that case, you do things like skip breakfast. You can do an extended right. fast, whatever it might be. You might use that periodically for, for other reasons too. So I think the important factors are biological nighttime, biological daytime, physical activity, and then just the realities of your life. Right. So you have a family, for example, and you really want to have breakfast with them, then do that. It's really important for, for sure. you to be with your son in the morning while he has a bowl of cheerio Cheerios. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a problem. So factor that into when you want to eat and then adjust everything else accordingly. Yeah, that's a really good or important point that the context is really detrimental. That's actually determined a whole lot because you can have like a perfect let's say circadian rhythm for food intake but if you're still eating the wrong foods or if you're still over consuming calories or whatever then it's still not going to be beneficial and vice versa if you still eat the perfect food you exercise everything else but if, a, if your circadian rhythm is out of sync then you're still going to fail or you're not going to get the results that you're afterwards yeah and i think that there are data suggesting that let's say that you eat bad foods mm. but you do so at the right time then that will buffer the negative effects of yeah. those foods for sure. But the other piece to all of that is that it's sometimes better to engage in an unhealthy behavior, but with the right attitude mm. than vice versa, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. for example, relationships are really important to your health too. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and people, I think sometimes think about health as being about diet, exercise and sleep and social isolation is very detrimental to yeah. health and so on. 
So the other part of context is, is your social environment. And let's say that you end up eating at McDonald's at the wrong time occasionally, but you do so with your mates or you have a beer down the pub. The beneficial effects of being with your friends mm -hmm. might well outweigh a lot of that stuff Maybe. too. So that's probably the other piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and also like the psychological response to those events is also like gonna affect the outcome or the effect. For instance, if you, if you are kind of stressed out and you actually start ruminating over it, okay, that, okay uh, I'm, I'm eating the wrong foods. I know it's not that healthy for you, but you know, I'm creating more stress because of thinking about it and creating this anxiety. And that's going to yeah. actually cause more issues down the line, like, you know, <laughs> you know, causing uh, some inflammation in the gut or not, not digesting it completely. Whereas if you were to be completely free or completely, you know, loose about it, not yeah. care that much, accept it then you would get away with it because your body's gonna think it's like more you know like a really relaxed conditions and what's the biggest thing that most people struggle with at the moment is probably stress yeah. and as a prime example of this you have so many people who go on holiday and they loosen up while they're on holiday they go down to the buffet and yeah. they enjoy a few drinks by the pool whatever it might be their lifestyles are far from perfect maybe they do less physical activity than normal too but their stress plummets And quite often they have these changes in their bodies that are beneficial. They think, how on earth did that happen? Yeah. And much of the time, it's probably related to stress. For, for sure, for sure. Uh, but um, like, uh, there's also like a, a lot of uh, people are doing intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding. So how does that affect the circadian clock? Yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> so something I mentioned in that talk is that I think that they're distinct from each other. So intermittent fasting, in my mind, just... I know it's pedantic and it's just terminology, but intermittent fasting is periodic use of a longer fast. So mm -hmm. in my mind, that's 24 hours plus, whereas time-restricted feeding, which is what I would refer to if I speak about animals, time-restricted eating in humans, would be restricting food availability to a period of 12 hours or less each day, mm -hmm. and then doing so consistently from day to day. And they're distinct from each other because they influence our biology in different ways. So, for example, prolonged fasting tends to flatten various circadian rhythms, whereas time-restricted feeding seems to increase the amplitude of circadian rhythms in things like gene expression. So those clocks in our cells have changes over a 24-hour period in when certain genes turn on and turn off and so on, and a greater proportion of those genes turn on and turn off at the right time with well-timed time-restricted feeding it seems mm -hmm. so that's one reason that it seems to be important but in that talk i spoke about a variety of preclinical studies of other animals so mice for example and fruit flies that show that time-restricted feeding basically offsets a lot of the negative consequences of bad diets so the kind of high fat high sugar diets or cheesecake diets yeah. that ra that lab animals get it's basically loads of corn oil and sugar yeah soybean oil it's great yeah great <laughs> so so that rapidly promotes obesity in those animals and interestingly if you use time restricted feeding then the two groups the time restricted feeding group and the ad libitum group that have access to food whenever they like they consume about the same number of calories but the time restricted feeding group are protected against a lot of the negative effects of those mm. obesogenic diets, which is great and very interesting. How relevant is that to us? I think it's difficult to say at the moment, but I think that time-restricted eating 
if it's well-timed, probably is beneficial, both because it promotes consistency in our eating patterns, which seems to be important. Mm. And also, if we use it and time it well relative to our biological clocks, then we're coinciding the period of food availability when, with when our bodies are best set to digest food mm -hmm. and also we're aligning it with our exercise. Yeah, that's so it's so true. Like that, it's actually better to, you know, eat, consume your food in a smaller time frame, in a time restricted manner, and you're gonna gain. You're gonna you, you can get away with more stuff, like more bad stuff, but you will also have like other health benefits. You know, like improved insulin sensitivity and uh, autophagy and uh, reduced inflammation, everything like that. So the, in general, like comparing more frequent meals, like six meals a day. And having like maybe two meals or one meal within like eight hours or something, then the time restricted is still better because of the circadian clock. Or... Yeah, it seems to be the case. Yeah, that's cool. And I don't think that it's for everyone, as I mentioned. I think, for example, that if you are trying to get pregnant oh, for sure. and you've been restricting your calorie intake for a period of time before that and you're trying this time restricted yeah. eating thing you're having two meals a day within a four hour period and you're not consuming enough calories it's the wrong time to try it for sure absolutely and let's say that you're a strong man and you need 10,000 calories a day exactly. because you're a giant and you do loads of exercise <laughs> <Sumo. laughs> yeah, exactly in that instance trying to pack that into one meal is just stupid yeah. So, yeah. so not for everyone but for people that want to try it who don't have such extreme needs, I think that moving towards a more consistent pattern and restricting it to the daytime is often smart. And let's say that somebody begins with a caloric period. So the total duration in which people are consuming calories, whether that's milk in their coffee in the morning or milk and honey before bedtime in mm, the evening. Yeah. <laughs> That's your caloric period. It's yeah. the first calories of the day to the last calories of the yeah. day. Anyway, slowly compressing that period for most people with quite protracted periods seems to be a good idea for, for a lot of people. And there are two ways you can go about that. So let's say that initially you have your coffee and your milk and your sugar at 7 a.m. and then you have your dinner at 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. You have a 14-hour eating period in that instance. You can either immediately reduce that to say a 10 hour period. So let's, let's just say that it's from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. Or you can gradually shorten the period. You can, you can do it either way. Mm. But I think the good rule of thumb for most people is probably a six to 12 hour eating period yeah. each day. Caloric consumption periods. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I didn't speak about, but it is important to mention. I'm mostly referring to non-water items, but also I wouldn't really see a problem with, for example, consuming non-caloric herbal teas yeah, outside yeah. of that window. So let's say you wake up in the morning and your first meal is at midday, mm -hmm. probably fine to have some green tea yeah, for sure. in, the, in the morning before that. And there are probably instances in which you want to take certain supplements outside of that period too. So for example, let's just say that for whatever reason you want to take melatonin. Mm and your last meal is at 6 p.m. and you go to bed at 10 p.m. You probably want to take melatonin now before bedtime, 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. So take it then, no problem. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, like It's a good point that if you add milk to a coffee, then that's going to start off the circadian clock 
and start the feeding cycle, so to say. Yeah, I would say start the feeding cycle. It's funny because I think that a few people with very large followings online have made it out as if you start the caloric period and then your clock starts. Mm -hmm. The whole point of circadian rhythms is that they persist. So you remove food and you remove light and dark cycles and you remove temperature cycles, your body clock has an intrinsic rhythm. It's always ticking. Yeah. So, so the food doesn't start the clock. I know this isn't what you're saying. I know that it's pedantic, but it is an important point. The clock is always ticking. Mm -hmm. For something to be a true circadian rhythm, it has to persist in the absence of, of those time cues. Mm -hmm. So clocks are always going, but yeah, anyway, that's... No, no, carry on. It's very, super interesting. Yeah. So I just think that that's something that people often miss. And it also raises an important point about terminology in that a circadian rhythm is something that's persistent and trainable and temperature compensated, which is basically basically means that you remove those cues and it carries on going. And trainable means that it can be synchronized by other time cues. So for example, our body's clocks in the absence of light, dark cycles aren't precisely 24 hours. So they need to be reset each day. And we get that from being outside during daylight mm -hmm. and then the darkness at night. So anyway, they need to be able to be reset and that's what entrainment is. And then temperature compensation just means that whereas with many chemical reactions that occur in the natural world, temperature affects the rate at which they proceed. So for example, photosynthesis mm -hmm. proceeds at faster rates at higher temperatures. That's not true of the biological clock. Okay. So you if it was true, then in the summer, our clocks would be faster. Right. Instead of having a 24 hour and 15 minute clock, all of a sudden, our biological, our biological days might be 18 hours and then mm. the winter they might be 30 hours wow, yeah. but Fair ours enough. are relatively resistant to those changes in temperature okay so temperature isn't that detrimental in changing the the rhythm it doesn't have a strong effect on our circadian rhythms it seems it is important in some organisms mm. so it's a strong time cue for some other animals in humans there aren't strong data showing that it is important though okay that's, yeah that's super interesting but, uh, but but what I what I will add there is that temperature is relevant to some things that people think about when they think about circadian rhythms. So, for example, sleep. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> you'll find it really hard to sleep if it's too hot or if it's too cold. Yeah. Just because if you think about things from an evolutionary biology perspective, then those are threats to the integrity of our bodies. Sure. So if it gets too cold, you don't want to be asleep. Yeah. You want to be out and you want to be seeking shelter. Yeah. If it gets too hot, then your body is effectively just being roasted. Mm -hmm. So the viability of the cells in your body will drop off once the temperature climbs above a certain point. So again, you don't want to be asleep. Yeah. So sleep is important. Temperature is very important to sleep too. It's For just sure. that the timing of the cells in our body doesn't seem to be strongly affected by temperature. Okay. Especially, especially the cells in the master clock. Right. So they are especially robust to changes in temperature. But what's interesting is that, sorry, there are several yeah. levels of nuance to this stuff. For sure. What's interesting is that the master clock does influence the circadian pattern of our body temperature. So the temperature of our bodies varies over the course of each day. It's highest in the afternoon, generally for the most part about 5 p.m. or so. And that's when you're also strongest. And then it drops off at night. 
And that drop in your core body temperature is important to sleep onset. So the temperature in your brain drops by a couple of degrees during the night time. And so things that you can do to facilitate that drop in temperature seem to improve sleep. Mm. They help people fall asleep faster. Wow, that's really crazy. But yeah, it's that like the temperature is 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 indeed like a this signal in some sense to kind of incentivize the body to do certain mm. things, uh, like the same with food and uh, light. Yeah, and it's cool that so many more people are recognizing the importance of temperature in recent years. So a lot mm. of people were speaking about brown adipose tissue thermogenesis, for example, yeah. all these different things. And temperature and sleep is an important subject, and I think that it's really low hanging fruit for a lot of people. So. Just as tips for the people watching or, or listening to this, if they can raise the temperature of their skin about an hour before bedtime, then that seems to help them fall asleep faster. And for example, you could just have a hot shower at about 35 degrees Celsius for about 10 minutes, about an hour before bedtime. And what that does is it increases blood flow to the, to the skin and it basically lets your body radiate heat out from its core. Okay. And it's particularly important to keep your extremities warm so your hands and your feet because you have a very big surface area and a small mass mm-hmm. and that just means that they're very effective at gaining and losing heat quickly so hot shower as stupid as it sounds <laughs> put your socks on afterwards and keep your socks on overnight yeah. and then stay in a cool bedroom so yeah. you want to raise your skin temperature go into your bed but then you want the bedroom to be cool but comfortable right nice nice that's that's yeah like uh like almost Crawl, in, crawl into a sleeping bed and, and yeah. uh, into a fetal position. Yeah, yeah, you probably don't want to be in a fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing you mentioned earlier was that uh, the, uh, in, in the context of like extended fasts that are longer than 24 hours, uh, it, you, you mentioned something that kind of keeps the circadian rhythm uh, balanced or in a state of uh, non-consistency or whatever, what, what it was, can you agree? Yeah, so if you if you do a prolonged fast, then your circadian rhythms do persist because they're circadian rhythms, they're not diurnal rhythms, as as we spoke about earlier. But the amplitude of them is reduced. Mm. So let's say, for example, that you look at circadian patterns in physical activity and sleep. The amplitude of that rhythm will be reduced such that people don't sleep as well at night. They're more likely to be active. Their sleep fragments. So you're a lean guy, you take a physique athlete and you look at their final few days before competition Mm -hmm. when they're exceptionally lean and they're consuming very few calories, they're not sleeping well at that time. Their sleep fragments, it breaks up and they spend more time awake during the nighttime. And then during the daytime, they're knackered. Mm -hmm. So they don't move around as much. So whereas before, when they had lots of energy available to them, they were very physically active during the day and then at night, they were just resting, fasting. Okay. That no longer happens. And all of a sudden they're less active during the day and they're more active at night. So whereas before we had this lovely high amplitude rhythm and activity and rest, now all of a sudden that's flattened because they're going through this period of reduced energy availability. And one way to produce a similar outcome is to do a prolonged fast. Mm. So I think that people who are listening who have done a five day fast or a week fast, for example, will know that at the back end of that fast, they don't want to walk to the shop <laughs> during the daytime. Yeah. And at night, they're pretty happy if they get five hours in which they're actually asleep. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the body is, again, kind of trying to motivate the person to you know, find some food and uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because 
what do we program for? We want to pass on our genes. To do that, we need to survive first. Mm -hmm. And we can't survive if we don't have any food. Yeah. You can if you're very obese to start with. The longest that somebody's fasted for that's been recorded in the scientific literature it was a study back in the 80s. I think it was 382 days. Yeah, over a year. <laughs> but the person was about 200 kilograms to yes, start with. It was, was a very, crazy. very big person. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think people sometimes look at that and think, yeah, I could, I could do a long fast. And they're quite lean to start with. That's, that's really hard work. <laughs> that's, that's, a, yeah. that's an enormous stress to your body. So I think that we should be careful when looking at studies like that mm. <laughs> and then thinking about how that applies to us if we're relatively healthy people to start with. For sure, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, there is like different adaptations to everything included. Uh, but like in regards to uh, fasting, I've heard, I, I, I myself think that, uh, you know, fasting helps to counterbalance the negative effects of jet lag and circadian mismatches a little bit. So have you found anything to support these claims? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think there is something to that. So there are a few different ways that you can look at it. I think that one is that the faster that you're eating on time and need time zone, mm -hmm. the faster your peripheral clocks will shift. Mm -hmm. But then your master clock will be left in the old time zone for a bit as it catches up to the new time zone. So you can straight away shift your meal timing to the new place after an extended fast. That's one way to go about it. And that makes a lot of sense. Something I spoke about in that talk is the fact that energy availability seems to influence our clocks. So independent of meal timing, just how many calories are coming in. And there are data showing, for example, that increased signaling through the mTOR pathway might slow down clocks, might make them longer, in which case it would make sense to increase energy intake on flying west because you're trying to delay your circadian system such that it's now on time in the new time zone. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you restrict energy availability and you increase signaling through AMPK and AMPK influences the negative arm of the molecular clock in cells such that the clock turns over faster, it accelerates the clock, it shortens it, in that case, if those findings translate to us humans, then it would make sense to restrict calorie intake when flying to the east. But the wrinkle in the details here is that there's also some evidence showing that caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, is basically just depriving yourself of calories. So there are parallels there. Seems to increase the sensitivity of the timing of the master clock in the brain to change in light exposure. So if that applies to us, that study will was done on mice, a guy called Mendoza in the mid 2000s, 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. If that finally applies to us, then it suggests that restricting calorie intake or doing a prolonged fast, for example, would make the clock in our brains, the most important clock, more sensitive to the effects of light on its timing. And then we could adapt to the new time zone faster. So again, that would be another line of evidence suggesting that that prolonged fast before might help accelerate adaptation to the new time zone. Mm -hmm. So if you arrive to a new time zone, let's say I came here uh, from Estonia and you're from the UK into Toronto. So to kind of adapt to this new time zone faster, then we would have to consume food like during the daytime when we arrive here to kind of yeah. trigger that it's daytime and it's like time to, to feast and to trigger all these circadian rhythms. Yeah, so just, just to give people an example, I'll just mention what I did when I came here. So it's a five hour time difference, mm -hmm. London to Toronto. So I'm trying to delay my biological clock by five hours. And I arrived in Toronto 2 p.m. 
which is 7 p.m. UK time. So I basically just had an extra meal that day. Okay. Knowing that I was going to be going to bed later. And then I tried to stay up until my normal bedtime here, which of course is five hours later than the normal bedtime. But just took five milligrams of melatonin an hour before bedtime mm -hmm. because that seems to help adjustment to the new time zone. Yeah. It helps people fall asleep faster and the regular fast release melatonin seems to be better than slow release melatonin in that particular situation. And there's a Cochrane systematic review published a few years ago. I think Herxheim is the first name. The, the first author's surname on the paper showing that five milligrams seems to be the optimal dose in those circumstances. And then you just try and stay in dark overnight until the morning of the new time zone. So mm -hmm. in that particular instance, it's likely that I'm gonna wake up early because my body's still mostly on UK time, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say I wake up at 3 a.m., which I did, but the sun comes up at 6.30, something like that, 7 a.m. So I just try and force myself to stay in bed. <laughs> but then occasionally, if I just can't get back to sleep, then I'll just get up and I'll do some gentle stretching in the dark, something like that. And then I'll go back to bed and try and help myself chill out and reduce any excessive sympathetic nervous system activity, which can interfere with sleep initiation. I might do a lying meditation, for example. And then anyway, I wait until sunrise at new time zone and then have breakfast on the new time zone right which in that instance was 7 30 a.m something like that okay that's and then cool. i just try and get in the pattern of the new time zone bright days spend as much time outside as possible that's by far the most important thing there have been some mathematical mathematical modeling studies that have shown that and then keep your nights dark and meal patterns in accordance with the new time zone mm -hmm. so yeah it's really interesting a new field of like it's like a lot of things we still don't know and uh, a yeah. lot of research coming out in a few years what will be like some really practical tips for people to take away like how do how can they optimize their nutrition and circadian patterns yeah like so key pointers yeah so i think wait at least half an hour until so wait until at least half an hour after you naturally wake up in the morning before having breakfast don't consume many calories in the two hours before you plan to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then I, for most people, I know that some people do well on one meal a day, but for most people, I wouldn't recommend consuming a single meal. I'd have two to four meals over a six to 12 hour time period for most people. I think that's a good starting okay. point. Wait three to six hours between meals, minimize snacking, and then distribute your energy intake early in the day for the most part. So a lot of people, particularly in the West, they seem to have relatively small breakfasts, moderate sized lunches and very big dinners. Mm. But actually, if you look at circadian regulation and metabolism, then it's probably better to have a big breakfast, a big lunch and then a small dinner. Mm. So shifting that early in the day is a good idea for most people, but factor in exercise. So if you exercise sure. after work, for example, then it's fine to consume a bunch of your calories at lunch and dinner. Mm. So those I think are the lowest hanging fruit and then minimize caffeine intake in the nine hours before bedtime. Yeah, so the half-life of caffeine is about six hours for most people. Exception would be people with liver conditions specifically. Okay. So there have been some reports that people with fatty liver disease, for instance, can have a response to caffeine such that the half-life's over 24 hours. Mm -hmm. 
So those people would need to be very, very careful with their caffeine intake. But for most people, I think no later than nine hours before bedtime is a good way to go. And other stimulants have different half-lives, of course. So I'm not going to give recommendations for those, but see how you respond to them. And then alcohol really screws with your body's clocks. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend any alcohol in the four hours or so before bedtime because it also disrupts sleep directly. People fall asleep faster and they spend a greater proportion of the first part of the night in deep sleep. But then later in the evening, once the liver has processed the alcohol, sleep fragments and the body furiously tries to catch up on some REM sleep, okay. which is one of the reasons that the dreams that people experience after drinking booze are often really bizarre. Mm. So anyway, it, it disrupts the clock. It disrupts certain clocks in particular, especially the, the clocks in your gut. And it also messes with sleep. So just watch your booze intake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good pointer. <laughs> so yeah, where can people you know, learn more about you and your work? What's, what's your future project, projects and uh, what are you planning on doing with your research? Yeah, so I'd just say come along to humanos.me and that's the company that I work with and I am involved in creating a bunch of educational content for them mm -hmm. and people can go there. The idea is that rather than having dozens of different apps for your health, so let's say you use a meditation app mm -hmm. and you use MyFitnessPal to track your diet and Fitbit for your physical activity and your sleep, we try and collate all of that in one place. Right. but also create educational resources and tools that help people act on that information. So people can go there to find out, okay, what do I need to do to be healthy? And then how do I achieve it? Sure, yeah, no worries. How do I carry out those behaviors? So for example, we provide recipes for people and then people can synchronize their devices like Fitbits with the platform so they can see how they are behaving, are they getting plenty of physical activity and so on, and then track health outcomes too. Mm. And at the moment that functionality is somewhat limited, but in the future we'll have more sophisticated tools available for people that want to have a deeper dive into some of their health outcomes. Oh, right. Really exciting stuff. But yeah, awesome man. Thanks for yeah, talking about really awesome speech. And yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you around. Cool. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind.